Hi everyone, my name is Dick Bonsra and this is my first episode, so I'm pretty excited to be here. My purpose here is to educate anyone who comes across my content today on the association between ALS and occupation, especially among military veterans. A little bit about me. Me. I am an undergraduate student at BYU and currently pursuing a bachelor's in occupational health and safety. So we will be looking at the history of ALS. We will also look at why research suggests that military persons are twice as likely to be diagnosed with the disease compared to the average person. We also have um, the opportunity to look up relevant policies and preventive measures pertaining to ALS. Also, we'll look at how um, people that are affected by this disease, how they cope with the disease in their daily lives. And we'll also learn more about resources that are available for people who want to learn more about ALS and also for those who want to support ALS by donation even into research so a little bit of history about ALS so ALS was first discovered in 1869 by the French neurologist Jean Martin Chacot it actually gained more international recognition when the famous baseball player Lou Gehrig, who played the New York Yankees, was diagnosed and died from it in the 1930s. Hence, it's also known as the Lou Gehrig disease. So now we will actually talk about a little bit about ALS. Basically, ALS stands for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, and it's a neurodegenerative disease that affects the nerve cells found mainly in the brain and in the spinal cord. So ALS is a very progressive disease. So once you get it, it, it gets worse over time. Um, so since ALS is actually a disease that affects your motor neurons, um, the neurons contains nerve cells which send messages from um, our brain to our spinal cord and then to our muscles. And so what basically happens is when your neurons are affected, um, these muscles die out. your muscles die out because messages from your brain can be sent to your spinal cord and hence um, our muscles begin to get weak because they can't um, receive signals from our brain and so in time we realize that our muscles no longer work and we begin to lose control over um, your movement and so it's it's really hard for people with uh, the disease especially in their latter the latter stages of the disease to actually 
um, talk, to shower, to to eat, cause they they lose all matter. So um, talking about how various governmental and non-governmental organizations are working together to actually find um a cure or find um, um therapies that actually would help to reduce um the disease um the als association has actually partnered with many governmental organizations to speed up research programs um to be able to find a cure at least um develop medicines to slow down the disintegration of the muscular activities that leads to loss of um, bodily functions. So uh, as a result, um, President Bush um, signed the ALS Registry Act into law on October 8th. And this was actually a major milestone in the fight against um, ALS because the ALS Registry Act, it establishes the first ever national patient registry of people with ALS. And it's actually administered by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. So what they actually do is they collect um, information leading to the cause, um, treatment, and cure of um, ALS. And so um, this information is actually used um, to um develop drugs vaccines um and usually used you know in testing to see if you know they are going close to a goal of um finding a cure to um als um pertaining to research there have been um several articles or research papers um that actually Study um the association between one's occupation and ALS. Um, several has this, several of these articles have actually looked at um military service, and most of the studies um concluded that military service was actually a risk factor for developing ALS later in a person's life. Um, personally, I think this may stem from um military personnel being exposed to um. <clears throat> A higher levels of pollutants such as lead, pesticides, herbicides um, during active duty. Um, thankfully for us today, um, I was able to have an interview with um, an assistant professor at BYU, um, Dr. John D. Beard. He's actually an environmental and occupational epidemiologist, and he would help us to understand certain things about ALS. Um, this interview was pre-recorded, so we, it would be nice for us to listen to it to actually know um, how he got involved and how we can also get involved and some of the things we can do when um, we know anyone who is affected by this disease. Yeah, so I got involved in ALS, um, so I had a undergraduate degree in statistics and then as I was uh, kind of finishing up that bachelor's degree I was looking for what I could use statistics for and as I was looking at different uh, degrees and majors I found public health specifically uh, epidemiology which would enable me to use statistics to help people and um, I instantly thought of working on neurodegenerative diseases because of a family history 
of those diseases. My, uh, my mom has multiple sclerosis. My, um, my great grandma had Parkinson's, my great aunt had Alzheimer's. So we have kind of a cluster of neurodegenerative diseases in our family. And so it instantly became the thing I wanted to do in epidemiology to work on, on those um, diseases. Um, I was able to get some research experience during my master's degree. I got an internship with the National Institute of Environmental Sciences, and I was able to um, get some experience and learn that I liked research. And so then I went on for, for a PhD, and then now I do research as part of my job. Uh, the researcher um, I worked with at NIEHS was also very interested in neurodegenerative diseases, specifically ALS and Parkinson's disease. So I didn't actually end up working on um, like multiple sclerosis at that time, um, which is what I kind of hoped when I started. Uh, but it was all neurodegenerative disease, diseases, and that's what seemed to be impacting my family. And so it was all interesting to me. So I started working with her, uh, Dr. Freya Camel, um, and, and we worked on ALS and Parkinson's. And so that's kind of how I got into ALS uh, specifically. Um, in terms of policies, um, I, so I think we don't really know what the causes of ALS are. Um, and so to put in like a policy to prevent uh, it from happening, we're, it's probably pre premature in terms of what we understand. Um, we wouldn't, if so if we put in a policy to reduce exposure to, to some chemical or whatever, but when we don't know that that chemical uh, actually causes ALS, then it may not actually do anything. Um, so, so I think the policies that would be helpful at this point are policies to support more research into the causes of ALS, into treatments for ALS. Um, and, and that would hopefully um, help us to move this further along. There really aren't that many people who are researching ALS. It's a pretty rare disease and it's a pretty small research community. So um, having more funding available would maybe attract new investigators to do more studies to hopefully help us figure out what causes it. So we could do a policy or an intervention or a program to try to, to prevent the disease from occurring. Thank you very much, Dr. Beard. Okay. Um, thank you very much. So I, so I suppose one of the challenges so that, that is facing this is um, there's limited information pertaining to the cause of the disease, which you've already mentioned. Um, well, in, your, in your experience, what do you think are some opportunities um, within this um, field of research that people could actually explore? And um, are there any resources that um, people could actually um, easily get access to when you know, they are looking for more information pertaining to um, the disease. Yeah. Um, so in terms of ex avenues for exploration in, in the disease for research, um, there was a commentary written a few years ago. It was actually talking about all neurodegenerative diseases, but they did specifically mention ALS in there, um, where they basically said that we don't know a whole lot about the occupational causes of these neurodegenerative diseases. We know quite a bit about occupational causes of cancer or occupational causes of uh, respiratory diseases, but we don't know much about workplace exposures and how that could be to neurodegenerative diseases. And so the paper was in some ways a call for more research on occupational 
um, exposures um, and occupational risk factors for neurodegenerative uh, diseases. Um, and so that opens up a whole range of things that you can study, anything from chemical exposures like pesticides or solvents, radiation and metals, um, to um, things more like uh, cognitive uh, things, you know, like maybe doing certain cognitive tasks on the job um, are going to lead to neurodegeneration later in life. Um, and so if we can get information on, on kind of what you're doing on your job and, and how that relates to neurodegeneration and ALS specifically, then that would be, I think, a welcome area of, of, of research. Um, things like uh, gene-environment interaction is probably something else that could be done. There's been a fair number of genetic studies done, but there hasn't been a lot of studies looking at if you have a certain gene and then you're exposed to an environmental exposure, does that increase your risk? Um, and so that would be another avenue um, for, for research. One, one kind of hot area, I, I think, is uh, the relationship between exercise or physical activity and ALS. Um, there were actually, a few years ago, there were a couple um, of really big studies published, one in the US, one in Europe, and they actually found the opposite results. One found an increased risk of ALS with increasing physical activity, and the other one found the opposite, a decreased risk. Um, so So um, just as Dr. Beard helped us understand, um, it's really hard to com come up with um, preventative measures for ALS because we don't actually know um, what particular, particularly causes um, ALS. And so one of the surest ways to prevent it is to actually um, help in developing more research and this is done by um, funding. And one way to promote um, ALS is through um, a challenge called the Ice Bucket Challenge. I, I don't know how many of you might have heard of it, but basically the Ice Bucket Challenge, it helps people to donate to further research activities pertaining to ALS. It was actually first started in 2014 as a social media campaign and immediately gained roots as a prominent campaign for ALS. So um, for those of us who want to participate in the Ice Bucket Challenge, the, the rules are really simple. Participants can either dump a bucket of ice water over their head and donate $10 to the ALS Association or skip the water and donate $100. I think it will be easier to donate $10, I think. And so they actually have 24 hours to complete the challenge. And if they choose um, the ice bucket, they'll actually have to upload a video as, um, as a proof. According to um, USA Today, the Ice Bucket Challenge actually raised more than $150 million for the ALS Association. And so um, for all of those who would actually participate, um, you will not only be helping um, the association to only um, provide research for funding, but you would actually be also helping the patients who 
um, go through um, this disease. And because of how expensive it is, um, some of the funding actually goes to the patient. So, also according to um, USC Today, um, they believe that a child from the ALS Association actually showed that 77 million of the 150 million of the funds were designated to just research and the other 23 million were given to patients and community services. So I think this is um, a really good thing that all of us can participate in to actually help um, people suffering within, um, especially our veterans who have fought for us, for our freedom. So that would really be um, a nice gesture towards them. Um, another thing that is commonly experienced among um, people going through ALS is um, the mental um, issues that arises with it. It's particularly hard when someone um, loses all bodily functions all at once. And so they usually go through um, a lot of um, mental phase dealing with the disease. Um, also family members that actually are affected by the disease. So family members of military veterans who are affected by a loved one being affected by this disease um, usually have mental and emotional trauma due to the inability to deal with the situation. It is often advisable for family members to receive counseling services while dealing with um, an affected spouse or a loved one. So people should always, especially if you are personally affected by this disease, um, you should make sure you have someone to talk to because it, it can be really hard to, you know, have a loved one go through this disease without um, having any support. Um, in terms of um, preventative measures, um, one of the best rules that could be followed is um, called the precautionary principle. Um, it's often um, summarized as um, it's better to be safe than sorry. So um, um, job tasks um, can actually be um, um, either reduced or eliminated. Um, also, um, jobs that require like more mental um, capacity to like complete um, um, management should find um, ways and means of um, reducing such jobs for individuals. Um, since like right now we don't know the particular thing that really causes ALS, but we have um, a fair idea of. Um, um, some of the jobs and some of the exposures so like um, places with really high um, exposures to pollutants such as lead pesticides I think um, there could be um, something put in place to reduce um, people from 
and being more exposed in such areas. Um, also, lifestyle changes could also be um, a really important um, preventative measure to take. So, um, actually, most researchers also see smoking as one of the risk factors. And so, if um, people are able to um, exhibit um, a high level of um, discipline towards certain lifestyle changes like exercising and um, stopping smoking and all of these things may likely um, end the it might not end it but it might actually reduce the chances of one actually getting it also um, genes are a huge major um, factor in ALS and so um, periodic checkups with your um, doctor will be a very advisable um, um, option to take to also make sure um, you are ahead of your health. In addition to mental health pertaining to um, ALS, we would have the opportunity to listen to Dr. Beard, who has had experience with this disease, both in his professional and in his personal life. Yeah, so there's definitely... Um... I think there's definitely some comorbidities between neurodegenerative diseases and uh, mental health diseases um, because it's kind of a, a progression from you know being able to do everything, taking care of yourself, working to not being able to do any of that by yourself and needing somebody to feed you, needing somebody to change to move your sheets at night, those, those kind of things. Um, and that's true for ALS for uh, multiple sclerosis, and then certainly even things more like dementia or Alzheimer's, because you've kind of lost your ability to relate to the world, um, you need quite a bit of, of help and caretaking. Um, I think um, in terms of, so, so if you see that in the individual, and also it can be pretty hard on the caretaker. Um, so if you, as a caretaker, start to experience some of those things, then, you know, it's okay. And, and definitely seek out help. Maybe it's counseling, maybe it's something else. Um, I think you need to take kind of a long-term view and just kind of uh, know that um, things will all work out and um, just kind of take it a day at a time. Try to stay positive. It can be really difficult, especially um, some of these diseases have kind of ups and downs. It can be difficult to stay positive during the downswings. Um, but you just kind of have to be grateful for what you have and um, um, and just take it a day at a time. But I do think, um, you know, if you do see kind of those mental health um, consequences coming, then definitely go get help so that you can kind of deal with, with those feelings successfully. Okay, Dr. Weird, thank you for your time. And we really appreciate you on this, our podcast. You're welcome.
So a, a quick summary about some of the main and important things to gather today is that ALS, ALS causes paralysis and ultimately leads to respiratory failure within three to five years after a person contacts it. Um, the CDC estimates that 14,000 to 15,000 people in the United States um, are actually affected by it and there is no cure yet. And so, as we can see, this is um, it's now gaining roots little by little. And hopefully, um, in the near distant future, we are going to get um, a cure for it. Um, so, there's actually two drugs um, that has been approved by the FDA. And one of these drugs actually improves. Um, it actually extends um, the life of someone who has gotten... ALS um, by a few months and the drug is called Rylozole and the other drug which is called Iderabone it actually helps um, in the daily function of um, people with the condition also we we learn about the history of the problem of how Lou Gehrig um, who was um, a famous baseball player he actually um made this um disease come to the forefront of um science because um because of all of these efforts um now many medical professionals and researchers are trying to find the causes of ALS and which could possibly lead to a cure of ALS it's very incredible how science has helped to bring um you know the disease out of obscurity also under policies and prevention and we talked about how under the administration of um, president bush and um, congress signed the als registry act and this has helped us to actually um know more about the disease because people who are affected are readily available for um research so to bring everything to an end we'll talk about certain resources that are vital um, to anyone who is actually going through um, this disease so the first um, major resource um, we'll talk about is the ALS Association <coughs> the ALS Association also has a whole um, wide range of resources to help people um, who are affected by the disease, um, including publications and videos that's actually pro produced by them. And you know, some of these resources include um, guides as to people who actually are living with the disease. Um, also, they have resources for families that are affected by the disease um, they also have um, a medical information program where um, they actually tell people who, who are being affected by the disease of best ways to get the best insurance for um, those disease and also another important um, resource is the ALS Therapy Development Institute and so with the ALS Therapy Development Institute, 
they actually have um, clinical um, research trials where individuals can actually sign up and they would undergo testing and based off of that um, hopefully a cure um, may come off from you know the ALS um, therapy and development institutes or they may actually find um, medications that would help to ease um, the development of the disease even faster um, thank you all for joining us today um, you can kindly subscribe to this um, podcast by visiting thedguys.com and we appreciate you for listening today see you next week and have a great day